It's impossible for the Holy Spirit to come into your life and for you to stay the same as you were before the Holy Spirit showed up. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open to Job 28. Job 28. As you know, we're studying the life of Job. Job is known for his patience and his endurance in the face of suffering. I've noticed something. Patience is a virtue that we really like in other people. (laughs) But we're not really too interested in exercising it ourselves. Uh, The story is told of a couple of hungry vultures who were surveying their territory and seeing nothing. One says to the other, patience is overrated, I'm just going to kill something. (laughs) As we saw in chapters 1 and 2 of Job, Job has been attacked by Satan with God's permission, and Job's health, wealth, family, and friends are all gone. He's been in intense pain at this point in time for two or three months, and he doesn't understand why which is causing him a great deal of discomfort. He has three friends, with friends like this, you don't need enemies, who come to comfort him and they wind up attacking him. Their basic assumption is that God only and always punishes the wicked in this life and only and always blesses the righteous in this life. So his three friends come to Job who's suffering and they say, Job, since you're suffering, it's pretty obvious you are sinning and God is judging you. And Job says, look, I've got no unconfessed sin in my life. I'm not aware of anything in my life. But the assumption is, is that Job assumes that since God would never punish an innocent person, and Job is innocent, therefore God is unjust. Now that's a pretty strong contention to make from, to the Lord, but yet we've all done that at one point in time or another. Job and his three friends at least agree on one thing. They all agree that God is sovereign. God runs his universe the way he chooses to, and if he's in control of everything, then Job's suffering is under the authority of God. They just don't know why Job is suffering. Actually, Job doesn't know. His three friends are convinced he's a great sinner, and therefore he's suffering greatly. Their problem is is they have a wrong view of God. They have a judicial view of God. Their view of God is that he is the judge. And it's a contract-based relationship. They think their relationship with God is not one based on grace, not one based on love, not one based on a heavenly Father that loves His children and laid down His life for them through Jesus. Their basic concept of God is that He's a contract God. He treats you like you treat Him. And everything's in writing. So if you obey, you will always and only be blessed. And if you disobey, you will always and only be punished. Now, Job points out that, look, stop, wicked people do prosper in this life. And you and I have been around long enough to understand you can see some terribly wicked people prospering greatly in this life, and you've seen some unbelievably righteous people suffer in this life. So that contention's a little suspect. Job gets so frustrated, he wants to take God to court. And he wants to present the evidence that he's a righteous person. He literally wants to hold God accountable and force God to declare him innocent. So Job is now shifted into a position of pride, and he's challenging God's sovereign right to run the universe as he chooses. Now remember, God called Job four things. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. In the Old Testament, that description has never been used of any other person. God told Satan, there's no one like him on the earth. He was uniquely righteous and blameless. So if Job is blameless, what does a blameless man or a woman of God look like? What was Job's life like before the suffering began that God could call him blameless, upright, 
God-fearing, etc., etc. Let's go to chapter 29, verse 1, Job 29. Job is now looking back over his life. He's on the ash heap. He's intensely suffering. He has three friends, and he's probably surrounded by members of his community. And he's looking back before all this catastrophe happens. And he says in chapter 29, verse 1, And Job again took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. I was in the prime of my days, when the friendship with God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were all around me, when my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. So Job has been suffering now for several months. His ten children were all adults when they died. So Job is now probably our age, most of us, right? He's probably between 60 and 70, very likely at this point in time. He remembers what his life was like before his suffering, and for Job, it really was the good old days. I mean, his former days really were pretty darn good. He characterizes the relationship with God as one as friendship. He said, God watched over me, guided my decisions, protected my resources. Butter and streams of oil are, are figures of speech for prosperity and abundance and lots of things like that. And furthermore, he was not only wealthy, he was very highly respected. He was one of the judges and leaders in his community. If you pick up the narrative in verse 7, 29.7, it says, When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw and hid themselves, and the old men arose and stood. The princes stopped talking and put their hands over their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to their palate. Now, when he talks about the gate of the city, let me give you kind of a word picture. The gate was much more than just a door. You know, at that point in time, all cities were walled. That's for protection. They didn't have artillery back then, so you were just swords and spears. So you walled the city up, and you put a gate to get in and out. But when they talk about the gate of the city, they're talking about when you open the external gates of the city and you walked in, you just didn't walk into the city. You walked into a complex of buildings that were right inside the gate. And those were administrative centers, judicial centers, trade centers. So it was a place where government affairs were conducted. It's where the courts were. It's where the economic uh, wheeling and dealing was done. It's where the government affairs were conducted. So it was right inside the gate, but it was sequestered from the rest of the city. So if you had a trade delegation or a foreign emissary or an ambassador come to your city, they would walk inside the wall, close the gate, and they would be inside a sequestered part of the city that was the complex where you did business. They wouldn't let you in the city proper because you might be dangerous. So the city gates were where all the government affairs were conducted, right inside the outside wall. Job would go there every day and take his seat on the judicial uh, bench. He was a judge in the community, and he was very well respected. It says, when he took his seat, everyone stopped and waited for him. Young men hid, older men stood out of respect, even the princes and the nobles stopped talking and waited for what he had to say. You go to chapter 29 and go to verse 21. He says, To me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. Some of you wish your children would do that. Not going to happen. Probably. After my words, they did not speak again. And my speech dropped on them, and they waited for me as for the rain. And they opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe, and the light in my face they did not cast down. And I chose a way for them, and sat as chief, and dwelt as a king among the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. So Job had an obvious reputation for very wise counsel. It says other people waited for his opinion, and his word was the final word. His advice was so wise that there was nothing left to add when he finished. So when he got done adjudicating a case and he written an opinion, no one said anything else, there was nothing more to add. He had said it all, literally. It says, my words were like rain and life-giving water. It says, when I smiled on them, they couldn't believe that I even noticed them. So they appointed him as their chief. He was the de facto chief of this particular region, this particular area. 
says, I knew the way they should go. He was the visionary, he was the leader, and the people followed his advice, and he was filled with godly wisdom. So he had quite a position in the community before all this suffering occurred. What he's doing now, he's defending his innocence. He's basically, as you know, we've been in a series of, of three dialogues. Most of the book of Job is the conversations, the dialogues, and the disputes between Job and his three friends. And there's all these cycle of speeches written in epic poetry, and they're arguing with each other. His three friends say, you're a great sinner, you deserve all this judgment. Job says, I've done nothing wrong. I don't know anything that's wrong, so I don't understand why this is occurring. So he's been presenting a defense of his innocence. And remember, when we read this book, we listen and we think, well, it's just Job and his three friends on this city dump. That's where he is. He's on the dump, the city dump. It's probably likely there's a lot more people around this area listening to Job and his three friends, not just the four of them, probably members of the community, members of the city. So Job is claiming innocence in front of his community at that point in time, and he's saying, look, it's not just on the basis of what I say. Look at how I've lived. I've lived a life that should demonstrate my innocence. And we all have this proverb that says, actions speak louder than words, right? In the musical, My Fair Lady, Eliza sings to Freddie. Freddie is her amore. She's trying to win her love. And he's using all these fancy words and trying to woo her, and she says, don't talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Sing me no song, read me no rhyme. Don't waste my time. Show me. See, Eliza was born in Missouri. <laughs> show me. Show me. Yeah, guys, sometimes words are nice, but actions speak louder than words. So centuries later, the Apostle James, actually the half-brother of our Lord, not the Apostle, but the half-brother of Jesus, asked a very profound question in James 2.14, which you can see on the screen and you can see it on your Apple phone or your iPhone. It's on there as well, the outline. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister was without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm to be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's the principle. Our relationship with God is revealed by how we treat others. Our relationship with God is revealed by how we treat others. John Calvin once said, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. The point here is that the root of genuine faith, like a root on a tree, always produces the fruit of godly living. If the root of faith is really planted and grounded in Jesus Christ, it will produce fruit of godly living. It's impossible for the Holy Spirit to come into your life and for you to stay the same as you were before the Holy Spirit showed up. I have a real simple forward theology. No change, no Jesus. Now, some of you are going to look at that and go, does that mean a Christian can't sin? Well, I'm proof that you can be a Christian and sin because I'm at the head of that line. But if you sin and you practice sin and your conscience doesn't bother you and you sin just like you did before Christ, you don't have Christ. Because the Holy Spirit in your life, one of his jobs is to convict us of sin. And when we sin, we feel guilty because we are guilty. And the Holy Spirit prompts us to deal with that through repentance. Matthew 7, 20, Jesus said, by your fruits, you will know them. See, we can know a lot about what's going on. Not everything, but you can know a lot about what's going on inside a person by observing what's going on the outside of that person. Job says, you can look at my life. My vertical relationship with God is revealed by my horizontal relationship with people. You can look how I treat people and you can see my relationship with God. So it begs the question, so how did Job treat other people? Go to verse 11, chapter 29. For in the year I heard it, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, gave witness to me. Why? Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. 
And the orphan who had no helper, the blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me, why justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Here's the principle. A person who loves God stands up for the rights of the helpless. A person who loves God stands up for the rights of the helpless. So Job is a judge in this community. And he heard cases and he rendered opinions. And the rich, no surprise, would often oppress the poor, overwork them, underpay them, take advantage of them. So the poor came to judge Job. Must have been a cousin of Judge Judy, right? And he judged them with righteousness. And the orphan had no parents, and child labor laws were not in existence. Child slavery was not uncommon at that period of time. If you were in debt, it wasn't uncommon to sell your children into slavery to help pay the debt off. I know sometimes with teenagers, you'd sell them for free. But at any rate, back then, they thought, well, I was a little work out of them at that point. So I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Child slavery was a disastrous evil, and it still is. Life expectancies were short. Childbirth was a dangerous undertaking. The mortality rate in ancient Rome was about 2.5%. So 2.5% of all moms died in childbirth. Pretty serious. Orphans were quite common back in the day. Widows were another vulnerable group who needed protecting. They were often exploited after their husbands died. Wicked neighbors would sometimes steal their land, move the landmarks that marked their boundaries. Women had far fewer legal rights back then, and they did today. It was easier to take advantage of them. And judge said, look, I protected the orphan, I protected the widow, and they appreciated my protection. This is in a very agrarian society. In an agrarian society, 99.9% .9 of the people are in the fields. They were subsistence farmers. They're trying to make a living. And uh, the blind and the lame were dependent on charity because they weren't much use in the field. Joe protected their rights. If there were charges of any justice or abuse, Job says, look, I did my homework. I investigated the matter. I rendered an opinion. And by the way, Judge Job made some enemies. Hard to believe a godly man would have enemies, but there were those in his community who were trying to exploit the poor and the needy, and they would have hated the fact that Job thwarted their plans to get rich at the expense of other people, and Job was willing to publicly oppose powerful people. And he says, look, you can look at my innocence by how... I behave toward those who are needy. You can look at my righteous actions as a judge and a leader. Now, he's going to end this judicial defense by swearing an oath of innocence, which was not uncommon. He is so sure that he's innocent before God that he states a whole series of what we call negative confessions. If I have done this, then let God do this. In other words, he's saying, if I've done this negative thing, then God can curse me. Matter of fact, I'm inviting him to curse me. I'm calling down God's curse on me if I have done the things that you have accused me of doing. If God doesn't activate the curses that Job has pronounced on himself, it's proof to the entire community that, in fact, he's innocent. So go to chapter 31. Job is now going to start listing the behaviors he did not do that demonstrated his righteousness before God. Number one, he did not lust or commit adultery. Chapter 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel over her. Verse 11. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. Here's the principle. A person who loves God is called to be morally pure. And that requires purpose and planning. A person who loves God is called to be morally pure. And that requires purpose and planning. So, lust is to sex what cancer is to a healthy cell. Lust destroys sex. Cancer cells destroy healthy cells. So we discipline, we di discipline sex, we deny lust, not to deny sex, but we deny lust in order to remain fully alive to God, 
who gave us the gift of sex inside the covenant of marriage. Have you ever noticed that purity only happens on purpose? Purity never happens by accident. I never met anybody yet who said, yeah, I stumbled into celibacy and virginity. It just kind of happened to me. I don't know what happened. I mean, it just, you know, here I am 75 years later and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It seems, remarkably, that Job was monogamous. If that's true, then he was even more righteous than Abraham. Because Abraham was polygamous. He was so committed, he said, if I have committed adultery, let my wife, singular, not plural, become a slave to others. Now that's a big curse. I'm calling down a curse on my marriage and let my wife be a slave to others if ever I've committed adultery. You know, most of us, matter of fact, 100% of us, should be, should expect to be ambushed by lust. We shouldn't be surprised when it occurs to us, right? Temptation should never take advantage of you by surprising you. You should plan ahead for it. Job says, I planned ahead for it. Here's what I did. I made a promise that I would not look at with lust at younger women. Now, unmarried women in that culture were probably young. I'm talking teenagers and 20s, because they probably got married fairly early in the ballgame. And Job was over 60. But gentlemen, those of you that are over 60, like me, have you noticed that lust never grows old? Temptation does not cease just because you get to geriatric stage of life. Temptation will be with you and I until we die. Now, Job made a covenant with his eyes, but King David failed to make a covenant with his eyes. David was 50 years old, and he looked at and lusted after Bathsheba, a woman probably in her early 20s, committed adultery with her, had her husband murdered, and he put the entire trajectory of his family and his kingdom in a downward spiral circling the drain. Now, it's not a sin to look. But it's probably a sin to gaze. And David stared. Martin Luther once said, Lust is like a bird flying overhead. You can glance at the bird to see where it is, but you shouldn't let it build a nest in your hair. I don't have much for it to build in, but you know. Anyway, remember, when, when we talk about lust, we automatically think lust of the flesh. I mean, we, we say lust, lust obviously means sex. It's not true. Lust, here's the definition. Lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. Lust is any desire that cannot be fulfilled inside the will of God. It could be craving for power, prestige, fame, fortune, money, possessions, whatever it happens to be. But if it can't be fulfilled inside the will of God, the blanket term for that is lust. And we humans will do battle with lust until we, the day we die. And it's not just because the devil made me do it or the devil tempted me. It's because we have a sin nature that longs to disobey. Fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit in us who encourages us to do what's right. So Job was prepared and we should be prepared too. Number two, the second behavior, Job says, I didn't do this and this is proof of my righteousness. Job was not deceitful and did not covet. Go to chapter 31, verse 5. If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales, and let God know my integrity. If my foot has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow, and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. You're going to notice the last phrase of most of these are the curses. He's invoking a curse on himself if he does this. So here's the principle. A person who loves God tells the truth and refuses to covet. A person who loves God tells the truth and refuses to covet. Job is extremely wealthy, but he says, I was an honest business person. I made promises and I kept them. And he talks about accurate scales. Now, accurate scales were a big deal then. Accurate scales are a big deal now. When I go down to the local deli and buy pastrami, which I like, they have a scale. You ever bought meat at anything at a deli where they have to weigh it? And there's an instrument panel facing you, and you can see exactly how much you're getting, right? Is it a pound and a half or a pound or a half a pound or whatever it happens to be? And those scales, by law, have to be inspected on a regular basis to make sure that you're getting the right stuff and calibrated. 
The story is told back in the day of a baker who was taken to court by a farmer. The farmer claimed that the baker was selling one-pound loaves of bread that weighed less than one pound. He was cheating his customers because he was selling them one-pound loaf of bread, and they were getting less than one pound. So the judge asked the baker, what scales you use to weigh your one-pound loaves? He said, I just put the one-pound package of butter I bought from this farmer on the other side of the balance. <laughs> People in glass houses. Yeah. So God, Job says God's scales are completely accurate, and I'm judged on God's scales, not human scales. He uses a very interesting phrase here. He says, if my heart has followed my eyes. Now that's a very graphic statement. Coveting is desiring what God has given to somebody else. When you covet something, it's what somebody else has and you want. It's not just seeing it. It's seeing it and choosing to desire what you see. It's letting your heart follow your eyes. If you don't discipline your desires, they can destroy you. Undisciplined desires are like what we have in California. Uncontrolled wildfires. Undisciplined desires are like uncontrolled wildfires. It indiscriminately consumes everything in its path. It just burns it up, burns it down. An undisciplined desire will burn your life down to the ground. One good biblical example of that is Achan. Achan's a person who let his heart follow his eyes. Remember the story when Joshua and Israel conquered Jericho. God told them very clearly, everything in the city is devoted to me. All the treasure from the city of Jericho, you will bring to the tabernacle complex and devote it to the Lord. It's dedicated to the Lord. You are not to touch it. Well, it says that Achan saw with his eyes gold, silver, and a rich garment. He coveted them and he stole them from God and buried them under his tent. And as a result, of course, he and his family lost their lives. He let his heart follow his eyes. And advertisers in our culture are incredibly good at trying to persuade your heart to follow your eyes. Have you noticed that when you go onto a website, you're just shopping around and tootling around on the web looking at this or this or this or this, and then you want to go read the news flow where you clicked follows you, and you're seeing ads for all this stuff. So if you think you're not being watched, let me disabuse you of such foolishness. Right? They know to get in front of your eyes, they're going to get to your heart. That's the goal. So the mission for us as Christians like Job is we need to submit our desires to God. We need to be careful what we desire. After all, God made us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Satan wants to convince us that we really know what's best for us. He says, you're, you're wise. You know what's best for you. That would be the lie he told Eve. And she bought it, and here we are as a result of that at that point. Here's a clue. If God has already given what you desire to somebody else, he did not intend for you to have it. I, I, right, you get that? Say yes. I mean, that's pretty good, right? So what we need to do is ask God to open our eyes to see what he's already given us. Most of us have been given so much already that we discount. We take for granted. We assume it's ours because we're brilliant. What we have is given to us because God our Father loves us like a heavenly Father and He desires to bless us. Ask, let's ask God to give us a grateful heart for His blessing because the cure for covetousness is real easy. It's contentment. It's contentment. You know, most of us go to the closet. We don't need more clothing. You look at the pantry, you open your refrigerator, you've got more than one thing to eat, right? Wonderful. Number three, Job was a godly employer. Chapter 31, verse 13. Job says, look, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slave when they filed the complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And the same one fashioned us in the womb? Here's the principle. Since everyone is created in God's image, God's people must treat all people with dignity and respect. 
Since everyone is created in God's image, even your relatives, God's people must treat all people with dignity and respect. What is remarkable, it's actually mind-bending here, that Job actually was open to receive feedback from his slaves-slash-employees. They had a right to file a claim against him. He was that available for feedback. This is enlightenment as an employer beyond comprehension. They didn't exactly have HR departments back then, okay? Just saying. If you were a slave, you worked, and you did what you were told, and if you didn't, you starved. It's real simple. Job was an unusual employer. He took his treating his people very seriously. He says, I didn't despise when they came to me and said, I have some things I'd like to tell you. Despise means to treat lightly. So he said, when my slaves came to me and gave me feedback about what needed to happen, he said, I gave their opinions weight and value and honor. And I did that because I understand that God created everyone. I know it's hard to believe. When you look at some people's behavior, you say, you are made in God's image. Act like it. It's less pleasant when they say that about us. But that's true. So regardless of all these human differences, our culture is specializing in tribalism. Here we're looking at the culture fragment in front of our eyes because there are those who want us fighting with each other over all sorts of differences. Social differences, racial differences, ethnic differences, economic differences, intellectual differences, gender distinctions, blah, blah, blah. There's a hundred thousand things we can argue with each other over because we're different. Job says, bottom line is, everyone is made in God's image, period. And every one of us are accountable to God. Sinful people like us, our culture, and I guess this has been going on for thousands of years, we make all these distinctions among ourselves. And you know why we do it? Pride. We do it so we can feel superior to somebody else. You know, Pastor Roger was saying this morning, even in prison, there's a pecking order of moral righteousness. And on the bottom are the pedophiles. So a guy murders three people. He says, I would never harm a child. No, you just killed their parents. But the pedophile, you're at the bottom of the barrel because I would never do that. Now, that's self-righteousness on steroids. And we look at that and we go, well, yeah, that's pretty stupid. But then you ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and how we elevate ourselves at other people's expense, and they make a decision, and we say, that has got to be the stupidest decision in the world. How could they possibly be thinking that? Well, we need to make time to crawl inside their world and understand why they're thinking that way. Maybe it's a good decision. And just because they disagree with you doesn't mean they're stupid. Right? Because we're not all wise. A little humility goes a long way if you want to maintain relationships with people, right? You want them to give you grace? Give them grace. God gave you grace? Pass it along, right? James 2.9 is very direct. It says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Got that? and are convicted by the law's transgressors. Our culture needs to be reminded that God hates partiality. God hates favoritism because God is a father who has no favorites. He treats everybody the same. He created everybody. And Jesus died for the sins of anyone who will place their trust in him. Job feared God and he knew he was accountable for how he treated all people, both the great and the small. So he treated them well because he feared God. Number four. Job says, you can look at my innocence before God by how I help the poor and the needy. Go to verse 16 of chapter 31. He says, if I have kept the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my food alone and the orphan has not shared it, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering." If his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed by the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the courts and the gate, let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. That's the curse he's calling down on himself. Why? Verse 23. For calamity from God is a terror for me, and because of his majesty I can do nothing. Verse 31. This is an astonishing statement. Verse 31. Have not the tent men of my tent said, 
Who can find someone who has not been satisfied with Job's meat? Verse 32, the alien is not lodged outside, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. Here's the principle. Providing food, clothing, shelter, and hospitality to those in need is a very practical demonstration of God's love. Providing food, clothing, shelter, and hospitality to those in need is a practical demonstration of God's love. So we have those in need in our culture. We have the poor. We have the widow. We have the orphan. We have the unclothed. We have the needy. We have the alien. We have the traveler. And they were usually forgotten. They usually neglected. They were usually overlooked and rejected by that culture. And the same thing is true today. Our culture has seen an astonishing increase in those who need help. And it's very easy for us, and I'm one of them, who says, if they just get off their blessed assurance and go to work, they wouldn't have this trouble. And for some of them, that's true. There is laziness, that's a problem. For some of them, it's a lot more complicated than that. Most of us don't struggle with mental illness. Most of us don't struggle with addiction. Most of us had reasonable upbringings. Some of these people grew up on the street. Lots and lots of reasons why they are where they are. And Job helped every one of them. He says, I helped the poor. The poor, of course, didn't have work, money, dignity, opportunity. The widow had lost her husband. In that era, if you were a woman and you lost your husband, you were kicked to the curb. You were very, very vulnerable because there wasn't exactly a lot of opportunity. Everybody was working in the fields. If you couldn't work in the fields, you better have a son, an oldest son who took care of you. They needed physical and economic protection. The orphan was even worse. They had lost both their parents to provide and protect for them. So there were a lot of orphan children in that area that needed coverage and care, and Joe provided them. We, we look at the word unclothed, and we're not really sure what to do with that because we have lots of clothes. Textiles are very, very cheap. In that era, all clothing was handmade. Most people had one pair. If you had to choose only one pair of clothes from your closet, I promise you, you would think about it. If I had to wear this thing for the next six months to a year before it literally fell off my body, what would it be? And it wouldn't be what looks the coolest. It would be what's durable, right? We would have a whole different criteria. There were a lot of people back then that didn't have a lot of clothing because it was all handmade. It was hard to get, get a hold of at that point. And you had weather and you had social scorn and all kinds of things if you didn't have clothing. The needy, of course, is, describes the people with a multitude of deficits. The alien is a foreigner. The alien is a non-native who was working in Israel and they were often treated like second-class citizens, no different than today. And the traveler in that area was unique because there wasn't exactly Motel 6, let alone Hilton's back then, to house them. So there was no hotels. So in the ancient Near East, travelers were welcomed into your home as honored guests because you could be traveling someday and you would be dependent on their hospitality, otherwise you'd be sleeping in the street too. And that was very, very dangerous. So Job says, God and all the community that's watching me, I want you to witness my oath of innocence. If I have harmed the orphan or the widow because I thought my fellow judges would support me, may my shoulder fall out of its socket, may my arm be broken off. If you now are back then, you starved to death because it was a physical labor society at that point in time. So Job is calling down God's curses on me, on himself, as he have done any of these things, and he's doing it publicly. Now you look at this and you say, it's remarkable. If you were asking people to evaluate your life and you had 40, 50, 60 of your friends and acquaintances and neighbors, etc., around to do a witnessing, and you said, if I've ever done of these things, God strike me. And they could call you out. Say, now I remember two months ago, you didn't treat me very well, blah, 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 blah. He's doing this publicly. And yet no one called him out. No one said, Job, you're not telling the truth of all these people listening. Pretty clear Job had lived a life of integrity. He'd obviously been a just judge, and he had generously helped his community. He said, number five, I didn't trust in wealth, and I didn't worship idols. Go to chapter 31, verse 24. He says, if I put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I have gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much, if I had looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon going in splendor, and my heart became secretly enticed, 
and my hand through a kiss from my mouth, that too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment, for I would have denied a God above. Here's the principle. God's people should put their confidence in God alone and not themselves or their stuff. God's people should put their confidence in God alone and not themselves or their stuff. It's interesting, Job was very wealthy. Job had wealth. What's really important is his wealth didn't have him. He was not bound by his wealth. He knew that God was the source of his wealth and God expected him to manage it faithfully. Have you ever thought that the, the truth is everything we have is on loan from God? Your next breath is on loan from God. Your next heart, beat, your next thought, all on loan. I don't know if I'm going to make it home at noon today. I hope I will. I got two and a half pounds of bacon I want to barbecue. I like bacon. But I don't know if I'm going to get home. It's on loan from God. And we take that for granted. My sis has uh, stage four lung cancer. We were talking yesterday, and she says, you know, your perspective changes dramatically. I asked her what changes. She said, when you can't breathe, all that matters is the next breath. It just boils down to you and Jesus. That's what she said. That's true every day. We just don't realize it. It's always about the next breath and you and Jesus. See, God owns it all, including us. We just manage what belongs to him. We should always pray, God, what do you want me to do with what you've entrusted to me? And you know, the most important thing he's entrusted to you is the gospel. We say, well, Brad, that's pretty simple. I pray about the money. Do you pray about the time? You wake up in the morning, you get out of bed. You say, God, you have an agenda for today for me. Yes, if you didn't have a plan for me today, I wouldn't have woken up. I'd have been in heaven. So if I'm here on planet Earth and God's giving you breath for right now, he has a plan for today. So the wise thing to do is to immediately say, Lord, what's your plan for me today? Because you've given me breath for one more day. If you didn't have a plan for me, you'd take me home. While you're here, you're supposed to be working for the king. And maybe that's doing basic stuff. It could be babysitting your grandkids, which is joyful service. It could be whatever it happens to be. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. You know, God wants you to steward your body by taking a shower. Bless the people around you for a change, right? I mean, you know. So he always has objectives for us for our good. He longs to bless us. God wants to bless us far more than we want to be blessed. We just need to be asking him, Lord, how do I manage the health and wealth and family and friends and position and time and talents and treasures? Our faith should be in him alone. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You know, the implication is you will serve one. You're going to serve somebody, as Bob Dylan once said. If you're not serving God, you'll be serving money, which means yourself. Ultimately, trusting in wealth or trusting yourself is idolatry because an idol is anything you value more than God. And most of us look in the mirror, and that's the number one thing we value, and that's a problem. Number six, Job did not rejoice over the destruction of his enemies. Chapter 31, verse 29. Job says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy, or exulted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Here's the principle. When you love and pray for people who oppose you, you are acting like God acts toward you. When you love and pray for people who oppose you, you are acting like God acts toward you. Now, I pray for my enemies all the time. I may not pray for their welfare. I may pray for a lightning strike right on their head, right? And that's being God. I'm taking God's place and saying, Lord, I know what's best. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will take care of it. In our minds, we can do all sorts of interesting things about 
vengeance on other people. Job says, I didn't rejoice when they had pain or troubles. I didn't exult when bad things happened to them. And I didn't ask God to do bad things to them. It's fascinating to me that Job is a generous and righteous man and he has enemies. He wasn't perfect, but God called him blameless. God called him upright. And it's hard to believe that there were people who knew him that didn't like him. I know. You look in the mirror and you go, how could anybody not like this? I mean, look at me. I mean, come on. How could they? They got to be foolish or blind, right? But they didn't like him and they actually opposed him. And I'm sure that Job protecting the righteous and the, I mean, the needy and the poor in court and made enemies of people that were exploiting them. Here's the truth. There are people who hate righteousness and they will oppose people that love righteousness. That's just reality. John 3, 19 and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men and women love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. So when people oppose you because you're a Christian, remember, they're really opposing Jesus. They're really opposing Jesus. Their sins convict them, and they don't like feeling guilty. So the reality is pride hates the gospel because pride says you and I and all of us are sinners and we need a savior and pride doesn't want to hear that. Pride says I'm fine the way I am and I hate that message and therefore I hate the messenger. And that's you and I because we carry the gospel message. God calls us to act like he acts. Matthew 5:44. Jesus said, "But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Isn't that amazing? God is the perfect Father, and he's got all these screwed-up children. Can you imagine? So when you look at your parenting or the parenting of your children, and you go, man, you know, God's the perfect parent, and he's got a mess on his hands because he gives us free will to choose. He says, you can choose. You can choose to accept me. You can choose to reject me, and I will send rain on your fields even if you worship the devil because I'm a good God. He says, I want you to behave like that. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to pray for those who persecute you, and they will oppose you because they hate the truth. And that cultural divide is really ramping up at this point in time because we have a culture that does not want to hear the truth. This culture, not any news, this is thousands of years old, wants to make up their own truth. Patrick Moynihan, brilliant senator from New York, probably 60 years ago in the mid-60s, said, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. We have a culture now that says there are no facts. There is no truth. You can make it up as you go. Your truth is my truth, etc. Not true. Truth is whatever God says is truth. And you and I carry that truth and so expect opposition. And when you get it, you pray for those that oppose you. You pray that the Holy Spirit will bring conviction in their life and bring them to the Savior. Chapter 31, verse 35. Job is now finishing his dialogue. He's going to say in a few verses the words of Job are ended. But he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. He's signing off. Let the Almighty answer me. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach God. Now, Job has gone rogue at this point in time. He's asserting his independence. He's declaring that God has to respond to his summons. God, I'm taking you to court. Well, that's going to be interesting. When he sees God, he says, I'm going to approach God like almost an equal, like a prince, a person of privilege and power. And I think that God needs to inform, I think I need to inform God what's going on because he really doesn't know what's going on down here. He's been on vacation, the hearing aid in his battery doesn't work, or the battery in his hearing aid doesn't work, you know, whatever it happens to be. We're going to find out in the next week or two, Lord willing, how that works for Job. And it'd probably be useful to stick around and hear it so you don't have to go through what Job went through to learn what he learned at that point. Okay, let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, our relationship with God is revealed by how we treat others. Your vertical relationship is revealed by your horizontal relationships. Number two, 
A person who loves God stands up for the rights of the helpless. These are behavioral characteristics of people who claim to be Christians. They stand up for the rights of the helpless. A person who loves God is called to be morally pure, and that requires purpose and planning. Purity is not an accident. A person who loves God tells the truth and refuses to covet. They discipline their desires so they don't burn their house down. Every, number Next one. Since everyone is created in God's image, God's people must treat all people with dignity and respect. I didn't say that was easy. I didn't say you would like it. But that's what we're called to do. Next, providing food, clothing, shelter, and hospitality to those in need is a practical demonstration of God's love. It's not just talk, 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 talk. It's actually doing to help. Next, God's people should put their confidence in God alone and not themselves or their stuff, whatever that happens to be. And lastly, when you love and pray for people who oppose you, you are acting like God acts toward you. You are behaving like God behaves. Okay, that'll do for today. Read ahead. Next week, Lord willing, we want to look at Eliphaz. Eliphaz is a younger friend of Job. He's been listening to this whole book so far. And he is frustrated and he is going to unload the truck on Job for five chapters. We're not going to take five weeks for that. We'll probably do it in one week. But anyway, that's where it is. Thank you for coming. I appreciate your attention. You guys know I love you. And now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.